when I think of myself and when I first got out of school, I did exactly what I thought I should do, which is I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to go into politics. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go work at a law firm. Hated every day. And one of the things that was really interesting was I never, I mean, I love fashion, but I didn't think fashion was a real job. And it was interesting because I thought, oh, okay, well, if you want to be in fashion, you've got to work at a store, at a department store. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll become a buyer. That's really what I should do because that was the only job that I knew of or I thought that existed. And so I remember thinking, okay, I'll take a management training program. And I ended up working in the lingerie department of a department store, which was horrible. And there was a downturn in the economy. And so what happened was I was laid off and could have, it was one of the best things ever to happen to me because I went on unemployment and my older brother said, instead of doing everything you think you should do, why don't you look into what you might actually enjoy doing? My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is celebrity stylist Jean Yang. Jean and I discuss her journey from designing clothes, styling music videos, to dressing some of the biggest celebrities in the world. Name the icon, and she's probably worked with them. Jean delivers a masterclass in how to build a styling career, why you shouldn't chase every trend in fashion, and how she's helping make the leading man more diverse in Hollywood. So after spending two years designing, I remember thinking, this is what I want to do. It's like, I loved editing and picking out what was great, but what I really want to do is style. And I remember, let's call, you know, I remember those guys, those agents that people had, and I'm going to use them to try and develop a styling career. Wait, as an, as an aside, like who told you that you could do this? Cause I mean, it seems like you're just going and just doing this and be like, I want to do this. I'm going to do it. You know, um, I don't think anybody ever gave me permission. It <laughs> was just, I was so broke that when you have nothing, you just kind of do what you want to do because it gives you permission. And, you know, I remember so many times going to my bank account and thinking, okay, I need $40 and not being able to get $40. And then not being able to get $20 and just thinking, okay, I'm going to be eating, you know, ramen, but it's, there's this freedom in not having anything and knowing, well, I'm just going to try and do this and work for free and take anything and everything. So the majority of my work was working for style magazine and I knew everything about before athleisure was athleisure, it was like, oh, leggings. And, and um, well, we're going to go to this spa. We're going to shoot a day, uh, an entire week at this spa. And I remember Howard Stern was there and all these other people. And it's like, okay, well, this could be fun, staying at different spas and working on, you know, athletic shoots. But clearly it was a huge departure from... Mm-hmm you know, the high fashion shoots I was doing at Deter and then also working with like Madonna and and Courtney Love at the clothing line. So what also just started happening was there was this sort of new world of music videos. 
Yeah. And I ended up connecting with a director and he did about three or four music videos a week, which was unheard of at the time. And um, it was the beginning of boy bands. And so, um, you know, Backstreet Boys and all these other bands were out there, but I did sort of the more like punk versions. So I started working with like Blink-182 and 311 and oh. And um, I did more of that, like, I mean, I, mean, I think honestly, every band had a number in it. It's like 311, like 22, it's, I mean, it was during this time period where it was like, I knew every type of Dickie, every type of punk t-shirt, every type of Vans, right. um, cool sneakers at the time. And like every 1950s style zip up hoodie or, uh, you know, Eisenhower jacket. I really like that became... I mean, I'd like to say it as like my 10,000 hours. I literally Malcolm Gladwell, the, I mean, the music video world, because when you work on three music videos a week, it was 20 hour days. You do a day shoot, night shoot, day shoot sometimes. So it would be like a 36 hour day and or 48 hour day. And when I say I took everything, it was like, okay, cool. I'll do it. I'll do it. And they would say, here's, you know, $2,000, fill a truck up with clothing and we're going to shoot a video. And that's what I would do. I, you know, get a huge truck, fill, go to the costume house, fill it up with clothing. We'd shoot a video next day, shoot another video. And, um, then about 20, I mean, about like five years into doing that straight, mm -hmm. what happened was, um, movies became um, very difficult to market in the sense that uh, pirating was going on and films decided, film companies decided to platform movies, you know, within two months of each other all over the world. What is, I apologize. What does it mean to platform? Okay. So um, basically a long time ago, years ago, they would have a movie come out and then it would take six months later and then it would go into France Three months later, I'd go to, you know, maybe to Asia, someplace, right. Asia, or maybe then another year later, it would end up in South America. And essentially, um, a friend of mine from the magazine world, Davis Factor, called me up and said, hey, Warner Brothers just called me. There's this movie. I don't know how to describe it. It's about another world or another time period. And um, it's with Keanu, whom, you know, is it's it's kind of, it's called the Matrix, and I think it'd be fun. But we need you to do a photo shoot that we're going to farm out to magazines all over the world. Okay. So it will be in French Premiere, in Chinese GQ, or uh, Japanese Vogue. And what we're doing is we will have one interview that will be sent all over the world, and then these pictures will be sent all over the world. But we need you to dress um, Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu. And so basically it was this instance where it was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and create this fashion shoot. You have five outfits I need you to do. And, um, you know, a, a dressy look, a medium dressy look, a casual look, and then jeans and t-shirt. And having done shoots where I had a hundred, a cast of 200 or like when I did a uh, video for um, 
gosh, I'm trying to remember. I, I did a few videos where it was like, we have a thousand people who won a radio contest and you have to dress them all to do two people. Are you kidding? I was like, <laughs> so, um, that was one of the first shoots and I met Keanu there and um, then he had to do a press tour. So it was like, here, can you help me out? Because when you do these press tours, you're going to, you know, 10 cities mm-hmm. or one month to two months. You are doing maybe 30 or 40 interviews a day. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. So it was like, can you help me get dressed for the premieres? And he was so incredibly knowledgeable about the most exquisite elements of fashion. Here is a Borelli shirt. Let me show you how this Borelli shirt has this special mother of pearl button that's thicker with a smaller hole. So that way it won't open up and look at how many spit, how much space is between the buttons. So that way there's no gaping, or I want you to look at the beautiful rope shoulder on this jacket and how it took, 17 steps before the sleeve was even put on the jacket here is and this one- is keanu to like teaching you about his his love of i guess it sounds like neapolitan clothing he was at the time he used to travel i guess to capri a lot so he really i mean he would visit napoli and get homemade you know handmade suits and here's a handmade shoe and mm. you want you know don't don't take this to anybody just to get them polished because this is 20 steps to create this burnished look on a uh, shoe and the hand stitching and the fact that it took, you know, hours upon hours because they created a shoe out of my last, uh, you know, my foot. And, um, you know, it took them maybe like a month to go in and mold the shoe to my foot. And um, that you can see that this leather was a very hand, specifically handpicked leather wow. that had this hand stitching on it. And um, my mother was a sewing contractor, but her sewing contracting and when what I knew of fashion growing up was mass production. It was making, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 of a dress, not the one hand-stitched made suit based on, you know, 45 measurements. By the way, one thing that I loved about Sexton, oh, I mean, that interview where you talked about how it's not about the chest. A chest can move. It's about the shoulders. That literally added a new fissure to my brain because I spent years trying, I've been confounded because constantly I'm being told like what the, you know, figuring out measurements like for Christian Bale, for example, when he was going from the prisoner movie with Warner Herzog, he was a 38 jacket, but then he went straight back to Batman and he would be a 42. And then he would go down again for another movie. Um, Actually, maybe it was the machinist, then Batman, then the prisoner movie and then Batman. And he he had a lot of weight fluctuation. Significantly. I mean, he's been from a 38 to a 42 up to a 44 for uh, vice. And it really does matter. It's, the chest matters. But honestly, Sexton was right. It's about the shoulders. It really is. That's what makes the biggest difference. And that's the thing that I feel as though has been lost. I mean, I'm consistently shocked when I deal with young 
stylists who don't know what a lapel is or Uh-oh. what I, you know, they, they don't take into consideration the fit because to me in the end, it's about fit. It's also about fit for that specific person. And that's the difference I think between somebody who's a celebrity stylist and an editor, an editor has a very focused point of view And one of the things that I find very interesting right now is that a lot of stylists are editors. Sometimes they Mm -hmm. have a look that look goes for everybody that they work with. For me, the one difference I would say about the way I style is that Jason Momoa would never wear something. I mean, his style is so different from Kumail's different from Robert Danny Jr.'s is so different from Christian's totally different from Jamie Dornan or John Cho. And what I'd like to think is after the years of working, even though maybe Rivers Cuomo would wear a certain type of dicky, he wore it very differently than Travis Barkley at Blink-182, even though it was like, you know, his cut was, it was the same dicky or it was uh, Hurley which was like the pan. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) It was the cut was a different cut or the way in which we tailored it was different. And so I'd like to think that a stylist's skill is in finding. I I, I mean, my biggest compliment is when someone says, wow, did you cut your hair or did you lose weight? And I realize it's because I was able to refine the essence of that person and find what makes them, it's in this the face. I mean, it, and one of the most important things that I do during my fitting is talk and listen, but then also take a picture. And the reason I have to take the picture is to see what their face says. And oh. it is the most daunting thing to walk that red carpet. So if your client feels as though they're comfortable and confident, that image will be conveyed on the red carpet. And I need to know that they're feeling it when they're in that outfit. And that's why the fittings are so important. It's like, okay, I feel good. Wow. This, you know, their shoulders are different. The way they hold themselves is different because they know I feel good. This is, this is me. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, I'd like to think something that I, 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 I strive for in working with people is giving that sense of confidence. Yeah. I mean, I have said on other episodes and stuff before, cause I was a air quote stylist for a bit for a few celebrities and, and it, um, I really crashed and burned because I didn't understand the difference. I was like, Oh, I can make you look like me. And you you like what I like right now. And so all I was doing really was kind of carbon copying things that, you know, this person liked or this person liked. And so no one really had any individuality. And I think the thing that I admire so much about you and what you've done with your just your your tenure of as a stylist is you've really each person is different and it reflects their own style that you've kind of nurtured and grown with them throughout that entire time versus just giving people 
oh, here's a cool brand right now. Oh, everyone's going to wear Gucci because Gucci's cool. Everyone's wearing Gucci slides. Like, no, like these, they all look, Keanu Reeves looks like Keanu Reeves. Robert Downey Jr. looks like Robert Downey Jr. Yet you are their stylist. And that's a, that's a big and really incredible thing. And I think is a, a true testament to your talent and success and what, what you've, you know, what you've done. Well, I mean, thank you. I, I think that's, since I kind of mentor a lot of young stylists, one of the things that I tell them is I'm so old and I've done this so long, but the reason that I've been able to do it as long as I have is because I don't do a look. If you do a look, know that whatever you think is cool and fashionable, I've been around long enough that I've seen the trends of that's this person doing that look. And then guess what? It will not be fashionable anymore. So if you're doing that look, know that eventually that will no longer be cool. And that means that you may no longer be cool. So if you, I mean, there's a reason why I've worked with these guys so long. I mean, it, it, it was years ago that after that um, matrix shoot, they called me in for an ocean shoot. So I had seven assistants and it was wow. George. Um, this was the oceans 12, right? Yes. Yeah. Matt, George, Brad, uh, you know, Andy, uh, down to Bernie Mac, um, Casey Affleck, Scott Con I mean, literally it was 14 people as well as Catherine's at a gems to be able to find that perfect, crazy leather Gucci jacket for Brad, the most elegant, simple Manhattan Gucci suit for, uh, for Matt to find something really flashy and crazy from Armani for Andy Garcia, then to a simple, elegant suit from Armani for George was where I think I probably developed that ability to go, okay, yes, you need to make sure that not everybody looks the same. Because if you create this thing where, yes, Editors are amazing. They are the arbiters of style. They will go ahead and tell you what's in fashion. But if you don't have the right body for that skinny Dior Eddie look, which was <laughs> the thing at the time. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> that skinny lapel would never work on George or Matt. It would work on Casey. But at the time, that's the thing that I realized. I was like, those guys would look at me and think, yeah, that's really cool, but I'm not a 17-year-old model. <laughs> I'm not going to wear that skinny pant. I want to be comfortable, and I want to look good. Like, I want to look like me. And honestly, George was somewhat influential in that. My, my developing a sense of, okay, he doesn't like that. I could see in his face. It was like, what are you trying to put me in, Gene? And I was like, no, I'm not. Like, here, let's find you that perfect shoulder, the perfect, you know, that that pant that was a little bit wide because that's what fit him with the classic two and a half to three inch lapel with that's to me was like people look good when they feel comfortable, when they feel like they are themselves. And that's one of the things that I feel like I always look at, like, doesn't matter what your size is. If you are losing your hair, if you are got a pot belly, there's certain guys that just like, you know, you see like these Italian guys that are older and they may not have the most amazing bodies, but guess what? They look amazing walking the streets because they know they're tailored. They look 
Like this is taking years. And that's why I kind of feel like it's funny that I see all these people talking about older people having a sense of style. It's because you finally find your jam, your, 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 you know, your happy place. And, um, you know, that's the thing that I think I've developed is just making customer satisfaction. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me too, because also throughout this entire time, I mean, you've, you've managed to live off of this. I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I sit there with young stylists and I say, let's say they give you a thousand dollars for the look. Cause that's, you know, for the press tour, mm-hmm. it is not worth it to do one or two or three looks. The whole idea is to get the press tour because the press tour will give you at least 15 or 20,000, which then in terms of the economics and a lot of this is, it's like, yes, it's fashion and yes, it's great. You have great style, but it's more than that. This is a business. Yeah. That is the way in which I explain to these young, young stylists. So let's say you got a thousand dollars a look. You gave the guy $500 in shoes because you wanted to be a pal for him and a friend. So now that leaves you, 250 was taken out by the agency and now you have 250. How much was your FedExes? <laughs> Messengers, how much was the tailoring? So now it costs you $350. Now add that up times the entire month and now you're out this month $7,000. So one of the things that is lost a lot of times with stylists is that it's not about just having great style. And that's the thing. Like, I think it's great for Instagram that you have all these influencers who have great style, but now try to turn it into making money. And one of the biggest things that I think that I've been lucky and I touch wood is two things. First of all, I try to bring the best things for my clients that are right for them because I'm not trying to put an agenda out there. I'm not trying to say, Jean Yang styled because nobody cares about that. They care about Keanu. They care about Robert Danny Jr. They care about Christian. And in the end, Christian, Robert, and Keanu are not being paid to promote the movie. They're paid. I mean, actually, when they go out there, that's part of the free part. It's making mm-hmm. that they can't pay for, right? So let's try and make it as 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 fun of a process as possible find them things that they're going to like first of all and so that's the first thing if they feel comfortable doing that it makes it easier what's amazing is that studios agents managers know that and think great gene i really really appreciate that my client who doesn't want to do this to begin with you've made it easier they're going to get the coverage which is the biggest thing because Mm -hmm. In the end of the day, one of the things that's really important for them is that they get the coverage. They get tons of, you know, publicity from that outfit. But then more important than anything is that when they're in the middle of France at three o'clock USA, you know, Los Angeles time, that they open up their piece of luggage and they go, oh my gosh, thank goodness. She sent the right pair of socks and shoes and this was tailored properly and I don't have to worry because guess what? The manager gets a phone call. The agent gets a phone call and says, I, you know, I don't have socks. I don't have underwear. And that becomes their problem. Mm. And that is really important. Or, you know, I'm really crazy about how 
I can't tell you how many times we, you know, we expected the FedEx and it didn't come in. And I will tell young stylists, I don't care what the agent tells you that the person doesn't want to carry the luggage or whatever. You get it on a plane. You have to understand if you're sending it by FedEx, customs will come into play. There'll be a whole bunch of other things. If that person doesn't have clothing, it's your fault. Not anybody else's, not FedEx's. You need to make sure that fits them because know that that guy might have gained weight because he was on a special diet while he was on the movie. He was working out seven hours a day. And now that he's no longer on that diet and he doesn't have the trainer, add two inches to the waist because who knows what could happen. A lot of times people will tell you that they tailored everything, but they didn't. Oh boy. I can be a little bit difficult and say, look, I need to insist that we do a second fitting because you just never know. And I think I, I've become this person where I, my assistants can't stand it, but I know everything that can go wrong or that will go wrong because of experience. And it's like, mm. I just need to make sure that everybody feels comfortable. That is my job. I'm the worry ward. I am the um, paranoid aunt that like wants to make sure everything's good. And that's more the job. That's 70% of the job. It's not about the style. It, it really isn't. It's about um, making sure that they look great. And that, that it's, I feel like if they wanted an editor, they can go and pick up a magazine or go online and go check out any of those websites. And now this is the cool thing that's going on right now. But the cool thing that's going on right now may not be right for them. And so I think that's how I've been so lucky after all these years that these guys feel like, oh, whew, I can feel like I can let my shoulders down and know that Gene's got that taken care of. Right. Because, I mean, the, the people that you've worked with, and because you've worked with them for so long, I would imagine there's an extremely high trust in the sense that you can, I don't want to use the word push them, but that you can really encourage them to whether it's try new things or, um, you know, whatever that may be, but there's just such a strong trust because it sounds like you don't mess up. I mean, you, you got this. Oh, no. I, look, I, I do. I do mess up um, in the sense that there's always mistakes. There's mm -hmm. are left in and I need to double and quadruple check. But um, in terms of the trust thing, what's interesting is if I were to use Kumail Nanjiani as a case study and, Actually, it was two agents and a manager that told me this. And I did, I guess I'm so in it. Sometimes I didn't realize I don't see this. But what's fascinating is that um, one of these agents said, do you know, I don't know if he would have been considered for Eternals had you not created the arc you created with him. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, um, Four years ago, when he started, or three years ago, when he started with Silicon Valley, he wore drawstring shorts, T-shirts, and soccer, soccer, um, you know, shoes, sneakers. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he came in, he said, hey, I wrote this little small movie. I don't know. I hope oh, yeah. that I can get some love for it. And I said, great. Well, let's take baby steps with him. So it was like getting him 
you know, into some really cool tailored suits, you know, some J crew, um, maybe a few new designers that maybe people hadn't heard of here and there. Like maybe it was like, let's take a little step towards just getting you into a clean, beautiful suit. And so it doesn't look like, boom, you hired a stylist. It shouldn't be that immediately that huge step. So it was like the Emmys, we put him in a beautiful tuxedo. And then as he started doing press, the difference was that he was a screenwriter as well as the actor in the movie. Right. Slowly worked to graduate where it was like, let's do a plaid jacket or let's do a burgundy velvet when we got to the Oscars or the Globes. And I forgot what it was. But then when Timothy Chalamet came up to him and was like, yo, dude, we're both wearing burgundy. That's a cool thing. He sent me a picture and was like, wow, Gene, this is kind of crazy that like Timothy and I have the same sort of thing going on. And I realized it was taking these small steps to getting like almost always on the GQ best dress list, or this is how you wear this from GQ or Esquire saying, check out Kumail Nanjiani's style evolution. And this manager and these agents were both saying to me, do you understand? It was not being the Silicon Valley nerd character that was on the screen when he had the opportunity to be himself, you created a new character for him and a new avenue such that really he became a, a guy that Marvel took into consideration. Yeah. It was because of those red carpet opportunities that he took advantage and was able to create this whole new avenue for himself or a whole new, you know, like who would have ever thought that, you know, his character from Silicon Valley would get to the yoked, ripped <laughs> guy that he became, right? And by the way, that was a very deliberate thing. When we went to, you know, D23, it was let's make sure during the Lego movie at Comic-Con and then next at D23 that he was wearing a basic rights linen shirt, short sleeve rolled up so we could show that bicep that he'd been working on and have it tight on the body. So we could show that he had this like perfect, the V shape superhero thing. And I mean, I was really flattered that, you know, two, two agents and managers said, that's what we want. And the last two years have been the year of no for me, which is funny because I'm, been saying no to a lot of people because I want to know that whomever I work with trusts me mm -hmm. comfortable is willing to take that journey if they are new or more importantly, um, because I have such a good stable of guys that I work with on a regular basis and that they do trust me. And, you know, Keanu will sit there and go, Oh, I don't know. Gene, really? Do you think so? And they'll know when I say, no, I really do think so. I think it'd be really great. I mean, when we were doing the, the, the Dolce mm. on Keanu for the Oscars, I realized the last time had been maybe 10 years before, and it was a Gucci look. And I remember actually the anxiety and stress I had because the tailor had not realized that there was a big white security tag. And when it was oh and he didn't tell me and he was about to get in the car and take the walk the red carpet. And I remember the limo was sitting there waiting. And thankfully the same thing had happened during one of the ocean shoots with Brad Pitt. And I had the security tag remover from that. 
and I was able to pull it. It, it, it was so funny. It was like, Oh my God, I, I remember that. But because I was able to do that, I think Keanu had this trust, like, okay, cool. Jean, you think that's great? Let's do that. Yeah. And, you know, same thing with, with, you know, Christian, like, Hey, let's go with this Brioni or let's go with, yeah, you know what? Uh, do you mind trying this out? And, you know, I, I think once again, the 10,000 hour rule of like knowing when I have somebody new who comes in to meet me nine times out of 10, I will pick the first thing and that's what we're going to wear. And then I'll go through and show them two or three other things just to show them like this was the one. And they'll say, how did you know the first thing? I mean, you never met me before. And yet mm. the first thing I put on was the best thing. And I'll say, after this much, this many years, you kind of get an idea. And after talking to you before we even put anything on, I figured what you might like or what would be right for you. Right. Um, it's, it's, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) Getting bored of your quarantine fits? Check out Jay Muser and get yourself one of his new Campania sport coats. The Campania line from Jay Muser is made in Naples, soft-shouldered and unstructured without any heavy padding. It's the way a Neapolitan jacket should be. The new linen Campania sport coats are stunning, and it's all I'm going to wear the rest of the summer. If that's not for you, stay tuned for our upcoming shirt jacket collaboration dropping soon. Visit jmuser.com and learn more. That's J-M-U-E-S-E-R.com. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom there, but I think something that you know, I've noticed in, in other people too, in the sense that you have also kind of helped evolve the leading man outside of, I'll just be honest, like the stereotypical white dude. I mean, Kamel, John Cho, those guys, I mean, because of how you've helped shape their look and who they are, I mean, these, they're now leading men. Uh, a guy from, you know, Pakistan is a leading man. And I think, look, Obviously, it takes a village and there's a team that's behind it all. But, you know, you kind of helping bring that in, that's that's really special. And that, that's a that's a big thing that you're doing in terms of evolving uh, that look. Well, I do have to say that there is a very deliberate way in which I choose certain things for certain people. And thank you so much for saying that, because that actually is another thing that two managers told me and publicists told me they, when they call me up and say, look, we have this guy, he's really great, but we want him to be a leading man. One of the things is going back to what we said before, which is if you create a look that is a style that is not leading man, that is only adhering to the world of fashion. Mm. Leading men go beyond that. And they rise above that. A leading man is somebody who just, it's more about their face than what they're wearing. And I think that it's interesting in the world of peacocking that we have seen with a lot of men. Edward Sexton is a style icon because he has never cared. His silhouette is his silhouette. Mm -hmm. That is something that will always make him iconic because he's never been subjected to, Oh, but we like the wide lapel or, but no, we like the skinny lapel. We want the pant leg to be flared. So it's interesting because for example, when I took the risk with Jason to do that pink suit, 
he thought I was crazy at first. It was like, I don't know. And I sent him a picture and I said, I want to do this, but I want to do a brown lapel and we're going to do it in pink velvet. And I remember him thinking, I sent him the picture and he's like, I, I just don't know, Gene. <laughs> a six foot four guy in a pink, pink velvet suit for the Oscars. And when he put it on, he knew immediately. And we had these, sh- these brown patent leather boots that Carl Lagerfeld created. And it was like, he knew it. He felt it. He was so happy and it was so exciting. And I remember being tortured, like, we're not going to do a bow tie. What are we going to do? And came up with all these different ideas. And then even like a few months ago, when we went to the Globes, I told his agents, I said, he's not going to do a shirt. We're doing a tank top. I didn't know that he'd be free his you know that his wife would be freezing cold and he would take his jacket off and then in turn that um someone would win an award and they'd walk by him with his jacket off and it would become what it became but it was like it it's all very deliberate to like create that's jason it mm. was the of who jason was it's like he is so alpha he can be in pink he is so alpha he could go no with no shirt and I mean, he is very, um, it's interesting because I think of like, same thing with like Taika Waititi. It was, let's create this like fun, playful personality. Um, you know, having worked with Alfonso the year before who, you know, Alfonso Cuaron wanted to create this sense of like, he's an auteur. He is, you know, an Oscar winning director. This is his second time around and let's create this auteur, but Tyke is that, but a little bit more playful and fun. So let's do these fun, crazy, um, you know, in, I forgot the name of the company was, but these playful Japanese inspired kimono jackets because he loved a kimono jacket with, um, you know, a crazy Dries pair of pants or a barena like drawstring or my favorite, you know, like two of my favorite designers, Office in General, something where it's like the modern. Yeah you know, relaxed suit. I think it's like, I'm just a matchmaker. I'm just mm. the right thing for the right person. Yeah. Well, but it also sounds like now, I mean, there's a lot, I mean, the fact that you're kind of, you're teaching, I mean, you're doing this, you know, this like digital summit. I, I think it's, that's more important than ever because I think from all this experience that you have, the wisdom that you're able to impart onto others. I mean, man, I, I wish I knew you when I was trying to, you know, before I crashed and burned, but <laughs> no, it was better for you because now look at what's happened is that uh, I think that mistakes or they're not mistakes. Mistakes are only mistakes. If you keep doing them, right. True. I think that they, um, whatever you think is not the right path is a path you need to take to get to where you're going. You got to be kind of Zen about it. And I feel like had I not had that horrible experience working in the lingerie department, who knows, maybe I'd be, working in management, a department store, which was not for me. I'm, that's not who I am. I, I am glad that I found that that was not the right thing for me. I'm glad that a magazine was not, not right for me. And that even music videos kind of went away. And then I ended up falling into this, the celebrity styling thing. And it's all these things that like, that's probably taught you some insight. And I feel like anything that didn't seem right, you know, one of the big things that I do when I interview is I don't ask anybody, oh, what are your wonderful, quali- what qualifications make you best for this? Or what 
amazing qualities make you great. My most important question is what is the biggest mistake you've ever made in work? Because that to me is more indicative of how successful you will be because one of the interesting things was when I had my clothing line, the production manager I hired told me when I was production managing for a clothing line, I screwed up on the numbers and I over ordered fabric and it almost put us out of business. And I have to tell you because of it and the responsibility I felt, I quadruple quintuple check the numbers because I'm so paranoid now. She was the best production manager I've ever worked with because of her care and her worry. And I realized one, uh, some people would say, oh, well, no, you know what? I wouldn't hire her. No, it's honestly those mistakes or the, not mistakes, but the things that you mm. did wrong and that you learn from it. I mean, if somebody said to me, well, I don't really think I've ever made any mistakes. I would think you're not somebody I want to hire because <laughs> you realize that you did something wrong. And that is much more scary. It's like the Dunning-Kruger, right? You know, a fact like somebody who thinks, well, I do everything right. Yeah. I'm No, that is not the person you want working with you because that is scary. That's why I tell you, I probably wouldn't be as far in my place in terms of what I do had I not made a lot of mistakes, had I not forgotten the cufflinks, had I not double checked, had I not done a second fitting because you know, I sat there, I sit there and I look at pictures where someone says, look, I don't have this, or look, I don't have shoes, or you forgot socks, or there was a pin in something. It is that, those things that make me realize, oh my gosh, do we double check this? We have to do this fitting. I'm sorry, I can't send this by FedEx. You have to take it with you. That insistence comes from things going wrong. Right. I mean, it, as as you've done this with your assistants, I mean, have you been able to watch them go on and, and lead their own successful careers? I mean, is it's interesting because a lot of the people I've worked with have not gone on to styling; they've gone on to do much more successful, you know, other things. I mean, hmm. one is a successful jewelry designer. One is uh, a magazine. Uh, well, she's a buyer uh, for one of the biggest uh, department stores in Asia. Um, I mean, it's interesting because they've all felt like it was the best, uh, boot camp school ever, not necessarily just for styling, but for life. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think they probably hate it that I'm so, you know, early, like, I'm not dumb. I know what I'm doing. I'm like, no, I'm not saying that you are. I'm just telling you that. And it's really interesting because when I've had assistants say, you were right. I cannot believe that I did that. I can't, you know what, Jean, you were right. That's so crazy. Um, you know, I went ahead and I thought it would be easy to do and they go off on their own. They realize they're like, you're right. I was, I had no idea that this, I, I should have insisted. And it's very intimidating when you have a celebrity or you have an agent, a manager who are like, no, we don't want to take anything. Just FedEx it. And you say to them, I'm telling you, it's not worth it. Please carry this with you. Or I really need to do that fitting. And then they get the phone call. Nothing fits. Realize, Gene, you're right. And it that can translate into, you know, something where they are um, 
doing something in a different capacity and they say, I'm glad that you taught me to double check and triple check things because had I not double checked the order, there was a mistake and I would have ended up having, you know, 200 yards of uh, extra gold hoops and I would have been in real big trouble because I would have had to pay for them yeah. or whatever it is, you know? Wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty fantastic. I mean, we're, we're starting to wrap up a little bit, but I think one of the other things I want to discuss with you is uh, I read that you're quite the watch fan. What, what, how did that come about? Cause I know you have some, some family connections in the watch world, but we, we don't have to discuss that if you don't want to, it's up to you. I don't care. Well, so no, it's, it's funny because, um, I have a personal, um, you know, being a Korean girl who lived in Monterey park and was 13 going to boarding school, we were not a wealthy family. I mean, my mother came to the United States with $20. Mm. And after working, you know, at a chicken stuffing factory, chicken canning factory and being kicked off the line because she was going too fast, she realized, I think I got to start my own business. I mean, she worked four jobs. She used to drive a truck, cleaned houses, worked at that canning factory and um, did a variety of different things. She eventually was able to make enough money to go and buy a sewing factory and, you know, was an independent contractor. She bought her first Rolex. And when I went to boarding school and the boarding school that Carolyn Kennedy went, she said, look, the first thing I bought was a Rolex. I didn't know what a Rolex was. I knew knew Swatch, but I remember forgetting it at the gym and a girl came running over to me and said, I don't think your mother would want you or your parents. I'm sure somebody gave this to you. And it was like this super cool chick who everybody looked up to. And she's like, there's a Rolex. You better, you should realize how big this is. And it was kind of like, okay, well, I'm this kid who, you know, I mean, I've never had the cool stuff. I never had, um, I did care. I mean, I think the insecurity of being in elementary school and never having the cool thing, always wearing the wrong brand, off brand. I was like the queen of the off brand. Like I didn't have the members only jacket. (laughs) I had like the off brand members only jacket jacket, but this watch was this sort of like, Oh wow. You have a Rolex. It became an instant acknowledgement to me that a watch could convey a certain amount of authority or acceptance. And so um, that was one of my big first experiences. And then when my husband and I started dating, he actually bought me a Cartier, saved up all his money. He had collected all of his per diem and bought this really beautiful Cartier. It's the first like exquisite thing I'd ever received as a gift. And from then on, it became my sort of, you know, like, for years, every few years, it was like buying a new amazing watch mm. or something that was a rite of passage. Like when you get married, you receive, you know, like getting a diamond watch or getting something. And then the funny thing is my younger brother, who is considered probably one of the biggest jewelers in that hip hop world. And he has this collaboration with Takeshi Murakami and the jewelry thing is something where 
the fact is, is that I'm an immigrant. I mean, my, I'm not an immigrant. I guess my parents were immigrants. I'm considered, I mean, I was born here, but mm-hmm. when you are somebody who's an outsider and you have something that's a symbol of making you feel accepted, it's something that just sticks with you, I think. And that's partially why I think for years, I've always considered a nice watch. I mean, in my forties, I received a ridiculously beautiful gold watch from um, my two good friends. It was Tom and Katie. That was like, here's your 40th birthday. And that was like the first gold watch that I'd ever received. It, it was this sort of like, oh my gosh, I mean, this is a big deal. It makes you feel like I'm not an outsider. I am an insider. I mean, that was like a Hollywood thing to, to get the gold watch. You know, if you're, if you were at GM, you know, you get your watch after 25 years, that was like my 25 year mark in the industry, so to speak. And I was like, I got my gold watch. I'm an insider now. Yeah. I don't know why it seems like a stupid thing. That's such a, it's a superficial Item. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Because sure, a, a watch, jewelry, fine. It's superficial, but for you and for many other people, likewise, it, the, the there's an emotion that's attached to that. You know, I mean that that Rolex that your mom got you, it sounded like she worked as hard as she could because she wanted her daughter to be accepted. And that Rolex, you could replace that with anything. It could be a, you know, like my mom wanted. You know, I really wanted this bum equipment sweatshirt or whatever that was. And my mom would, would do what she could to, to get me that. And I think, you know, I, it makes me kind of wonder, cause I mean, I have a two-year-old and, and I have thought about that a lot now as an adult in the sense of like, what are the parental sacrifices or things that I'm willing to do to try to ensure that my kid either doesn't have to experience something that I did or can be accepted? And, and loved. I mean, has that affected how you parent your kids now through what your mom did? You know, it literally is something that I am riddled with all the time. And I tell my husband jokingly, and this is clearly the sense of humor that he and I have. I say, you know, all these amazing accomplished people, like look at uh, all of the most amazing musicians, for example, had terrible parenting. And that's why like Kurt Cobain is who he was. That's who Johnny Cash was. He never got his father's acceptance. And that's why he was such a brilliant person. I think, have we done the opposite? We've made our kids feel so comfortable and confident that maybe they will never go out there and accomplish something amazing. And I I say it as a joke. Yeah. Not a harsh person. I think it's opposite. I think it's like giving your kids a confidence, um, feeling like we can give them things makes them feel good about themselves sometimes. And in the end, it's not about the item. I think it's giving them a self-confidence in who they are, that they're loved is probably more meaningful than that watch. At the time when my mother gave me the watch, I understood that even though it was a token, I remember her 80 hour work weeks and how brutal it was being in a sewing factory in a hundred degree temperature and, you know, having a cot in her office. That's to me what the watch symbolized. It's the same thing with my daughters. I think like they know about me traveling and crying on planes sometimes and leaving them. And um, at the same time, I feel like, yes, had it not been the insecurities of getting the wrong off brand 
you know, not getting the polo shirt, getting the some off-brand shirt at the time that was a cool thing, I probably wouldn't have gotten into fashion because it wasn't that insecurity that led me to feeling like, oh, I, I'm going to be able to be somebody who can help people find the right thing. I don't think that giving my kids insecurities or making them have the right thing is, it, it's, it's done the opposite. They don't care, which is mm. the thing and the greatest the gift that I can give my kids that, you know, there were golden goose shoes or sneakers that were like the cool thing in school. Do they care? No, they do not care. They wear their dirty beaten up air force ones or a pair of, you know, they, they've never cared about clothing. They've never cared about purses. They've never cared about jewelry. And I mean, just recently, a friend of mine asked me to do a photo shoot. They've been asked to do different things. It was a fight. And I realize I've mm. been very lucky that they have Instagram accounts. They've never cared. They're not trying to seek approval from anybody because the fact that I was able to afford getting them the things that they wanted. So that to them didn't make them important. Wow. I mean, that's a that's a really fresh perspective too. I mean, in the sense of, I mean, is that how do you feel about all that? I mean, because that, that's a, that's a pretty big accomplishment. That's look. I mean, I think that the perspective that they received um, growing up with my friend's daughter, who was very famous um, years ago, one of them made the international news. She was on CNN. She was on BBC because the autograph hound was trying to get an autograph from a five-year-old girl and called her the B word. And it was all over the internet. And as a result, they kind of thought being famous or seeing people posting things on the internet to try and get approval from strangers has never been important to them. And consequently, it's not something, look, they do have preferences. It's like they love certain fashion things and they think like mine should usually sweatshirts and stuff, but that's not important to them. And I feel like that is something that, you know, for your son is probably good. Like to show them it's an item, honestly, like I love you more than anything in the world. And that's probably more important than going out there and trying to seek the approval of some random person who doesn't matter to you. Mm. That to me is more than, working with the people I work with, that is probably the best thing I could have ever said. I've hopefully kind of done. I mean, I don't know, maybe they disagree, but I feel like as long as they know that both my husband and I love them and that they're the most important things in our lives, who cares? Like, yeah. Anything else. Yeah. I mean, it's That's funny. We're talking about this during a fashion podcast, <laughs> but I think it's it, it a kind of es the essence, if we're like to wind down the podcast, the most important thing for whatever you wear, it could be a jeans and a t-shirt. It's the confidence that you have within yourself that makes whatever you wear look amazing. And that's kind of what I try to try to accomplish with whether it's the people I work with to make them feel good about themselves to my family, to anybody I meet. It's like, if you can just leave everybody around you better and happier, 
then you're kind of doing pretty well in life, right? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because you know we we talk about that a bunch on the show. Is like at the end of the day, like fashion and clothes are, are stupid and materialistic, but people that make all of this and that are a part of this are the most interesting on earth because of who they are and what they experience. And at the end of the day too, what everyone really wants is to be respected and loved and recognized. And, you know, in some cases they accomplish that through fashion in other cases it's through art or whatever it is that they want to do. And yeah, I mean, confidence is everything. I mean, it's, uh, I, (laughs) when I've, I lived in St. Louis when I was younger, it's where I grew up and I, you know, always wore these really big like oversized glasses these like massive aviator things and i would get called some dumb names in high school about it but then i moved to new york and i would look i wore it and i was like this is my thing this is my vibe and i moved to new york right after that and i remember walking around like the west village or east village or whatever and someone was like hey those are really cool glasses and i was like i'm home and it was like (laughs) the confidence that i had you know because regardless of where i was what people said i still was confident that you know, at the time I looked good and some just goofy, big old glasses, but it's that, that was everything to me. And that, that's always been kind of like what I've told other people too, in terms of fashion. It's like, do you like it? Well, yeah. Okay. Then it looks good. (laughs) It's just like, I I mean, I find that the most, I mean, when I was talking about how um, the internet is going through that next generation, I think that's one of the best things about going to college or going into a bigger space when you're not in a homogeneous environment where people are insecure because don't ever try to stick out or try to be different. When you actually wear something with confidence, as crazy as it is, or as, as out out there as it is, there's something to be said for, um, that feeling that this is who I am, it makes, I mean, cause that's what it is to be human. Can you imagine how incredibly horrible it was? I mean, I remember years ago reading, like, we're all going to be wearing the same black Lycra bodysuit as we get. There's no way. I think it's going to be the exact opposite. I think individuality will become even more apparent in terms of, well, at least as you get older, I think people become more and more into whatever it is that, that turns them on. And I, I think it was great that somebody told you, you look probably strange wearing those glasses or that you were bullied for that because had you not had that, you would never have developed the armor with which to want to go ahead and fight more to be that person. If you just let that, let them hammer you down, then you would have worn, taken them off. And then you would have kind of gone into, you know, like you might as well have been nothing and you could have stayed you know, listening to whatever it was that they thought was cool, because ultimately <laughs> that's the biggest mistake ever listening yeah. to people. Yeah. And speaking of um, celebrating people's diversity, I am very worried about small businesses, small companies, um, you know, from restaurants to clothing lines. I think it's a really tough time. So if you can try and support these smaller local or smaller businesses. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting time in the sense that I've never seen more creativity. Mm. It's forcing people to think in different ways. And I feel like water, you know, just like water 
it finds its way to get out there and, and, and goes into different crooks, uh, nooks and crannies. I'd like to think, um, I just don't want only big brands to be out there for fashion. Yeah. So if you, uh, I think that that's one of the most amazing things about the internet is that you can find your weirdest, quirkiest, like if you are into uh, sock shoes, that uh, uh, socks that have individual toes, you know, and, um, or if you're into funky, you know, hats or something out there, try if you have the money to support that brand, because there's no other time when those smaller companies needed it. Um, but if you're a company at the same time and a company owner or an entrepreneur, try to be as lean as possible and, um, don't spend a lot of money on infrastructure yeah. <laughs> from your home. If you can, I mean, having had a clothing line, having done the business that I've done, the one thing I, I know is just try to be lean and be as efficient as a business as possible. I mean, I'm all about models of efficiency and don't spend as much time thinking about the style so much as thinking about the business. Cause ultimately that will sustain you more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, we've, we've been trying to, to, I mean, a lot of guests and stuff on the show have our owners of small businesses and, you know, like, like Chris Gibbs from union. I mean, we, you know, we had had him on a couple of years ago um, when we were uh, in Florence at PT Womo and I know that his business is definitely suffering. And so, you know, not like that we're the biggest thing ever, but we've been trying to kind of highlight and encourage that to others. And it's like, yeah, before you order on, I don't know, Mr. Porter or whatever, let's see if, see if union has it or see, if, you know? Um, so yeah, I, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause that, that is key. I mean, other friends of mine who have little denim companies or shirt companies and stuff here and there, it's they're they're hurting for sure. You know, the other thing that, and the last thing I would probably say is don't so, be so worried about what's cool. I mean, I feel like there's a certain amount of worrying about cool. And to me, it's not about what's cool. It's about um, if you can get a book for your kid, that will be so incredibly helpful was um, a, a book called the bad case of the stripes. And the sh long and short of it is that the book is all about a little girl who um, really likes lima beans or something, but doesn't ever want to eat them in front of people because she doesn't think, it, you know, anybody would like her for eating them. Mm. And really what she does is that she's in the middle of class and they do the Pledge of Allegiance and she starts looking like the Pledge of Allegiance. She like, looks like the Stars and Stripes. And then someone would say, oh, well, I want her to be purple and she'd be purple. And somebody says, I want her to be this. And she kind of follows whatever it was. And then eventually someone comes in and says, oh, well, all she really wants is lima beans. They're like, oh, lima beans. Um, and when she finally admits to that, her liking that, she ends up being herself and happy. And um, I feel like because, as I was saying, that there's the internet exists, people will find you. Mm. Don't go out there and, like, you know, care about what's cool. Just do what you do because eventually you'll find your audience. Yeah, I agree. Well, Jean, thank you so, so much for your time. I really, really appreciate this. You know, I, 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 it was really a pleasure. I hope, um, I hope I'm helpful to somebody. <laughs> oh, trust me. You, it, it's, it is a huge honor and pleasure to chat with you. It, it really is. So this, this was really special. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, edited by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blamo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Want even more Blamo? Head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. So try it. It feels good. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.